Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. is das oh wrong language wrong language does anybody know the french for what is that uh qu'est-ce que c'est qu'est-ce que c'est yeah oh look at you guys qu'est-ce que c'est i think qu'est-ce que c'est yeah well beats me i'm sure somebody will email us to let us know how wrong we are it's great (laughs) (laughs) really looking forward to that in the meantime we um are going to talk about the only opera that wc uh, ever completed, Pelias and Melisande, um, wow. which is an opera that I really, really like, but don't know a lot about. So Naomi's going to take the reins on this, probably, as per usual. Um, <laughs> right, right. But in the meantime, I'm going to really briefly remind everybody what WC was like. Um, last year, we did a whole episode dedicated to him. So if you want to go back and check that out, it is episode 59. But the Cliff Notes version of that is basically, you know, WC slept with a lot of women. He rocked a very unfortunate, oh, what do they call it? It's not a goatee, a Van Dyke. Is that what they call it? <laughs> That's what they that call was, it. That's I thought a it was name. Like, a Fu Man, like a Fu Man shoe. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like a goatee mustache combo but then the goatee goes like down far past the chin unfortunate and he had a weird round head but managed to bag a lot of (laughs) a lot of women um of course he did so he ended up finally uh marrying this fashion model named rosalie who apparently was very beautiful but kind of stupid and so he got bored really quickly um so he sort of like shipped her off to the countryside and took up with this other woman named emma who was the wife of one of his piano students. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Of course. Which is how people meet people, apparently, in the 19th century. Um, (laughs) And Rosalie didn't take it very well. So um, I don't know if Kyle, you and Naomi remember this, but this is the woman who marched herself into uh, Paris in the Place de Concorde in front of everyone and shot herself in the chest. I had forgotten that. But she survived. And she lived the rest of her life with the bullet lodged in her spine. Oh and she was gosh. fine. That's so crazy. Um, but because she did it in such a public place, people were like, Debussy and Emma, you're such horrible people. And there was so much public backlash against them that they had to flee the country and they moved to England. Dang. Um, and she was, Emma was pregnant, so they had a baby. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and this they had a baby. I, 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 this I remember as being the funniest thing I've ever heard in a long time. The baby was, it was a girl, and they named her Claude Emma. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Claude hyphen Emma. <laughs> Claude Emma WC. And I think that's really all you need to know about WC because I think that in itself speaks volumes to his character. <laughs> oh man. Claude Emma. Also, at their like inability to come to an agreement on anything, it's like, well, we can't decide what name to give the baby, so let's just decide. Let's do let's both of them. Name our it names. after ourselves. Like hyphenate both right. of us. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Emma. regardless of whether that's a boy or a girl, it's getting named Claude somehow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. W- just... WC kind of sucked, but yeah. What can you do? What can you do? I was just, in, in the lectures that I was just giving, I made that comment about how if you're a 19th century composer, you just, like, 
you married one of your music students. Mm-hmm. That's like how you found a wife. And it didn't get nearly as many laughs as I as I thought it, it I guess should. you got to know your audience. I know, right. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the opera after dark audience. Not everybody is so enlightened with a wonderful sense of humor. I gave a lecture on Berg and I made the mistake of deciding it was a good time to tell people the Amma Mahler doll story. <laughs> and it really didn't go over very well and it was kind of a mistake. <laughs> and people are like, we're like, oh. what? Because <laughs> it took like five minutes and there really wasn't time at all to be talking about this. But I was like, you know, Kokoshka. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. i was like just google it i don't have a picture but it's very it's disturbing when, it's when there's something like an aspect that you like you really want to include it's not like totally relevant but it's funny you know i only refer to it as a doll rather than the alma muller sex doll <laughs> right that's literally l- literally why we created opera after dark right to talk about the alma muller sex doll <laughs> <laughs> yes. I and mean, also, it's messed because, up. <laughs> because there's all these stories that we were like, oh, if only we could talk about this shit in yeah. like, yes. an academic lecture. <laughs> <laughs> we tried doing that and it failed. And it so failed. We right. created we Opera After Dark. Audience. But Thus, anyway. Opera After Dark. <laughs> it has an explicit rating. We, everybody knows. It has an E, and it's because of me, because I curse. We earn it. Well, you two earn it. And <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, True. so Debussy, um, Pelias and Melisande is the only full opera he ever wrote. He kind of thought opera was bullshit nonsense. He also thought a lot of shit was bullshit nonsense, and he was far why too good think, for anything. Because he thought he was just like was... too good for anything. Um, huh. He went through like a period where he was obsessed with Wagner, and then he... Like, in his younger years, he went through this brief, intense obsession, and then he decided that everything Wagner ever did was ridiculous. And And sucked. And sucked. And that he could do something different and better. Exactly. So he went about to basically sort of write the anti-opera opera. opera. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took him until he was 40. Peleus and Melisande was finished when he was 40, and that was, what, 1902? I think that's when it made its world premiere. That's when it made its premiere. Um. So he was really into the idea, you know, of uh, there not really being a plot. <laughs> yeah, he basically, <laughs> he really wanted to write an opera about nothing. And he was pretty explicit. I was describing it earlier today, saying, like, he wanted to write an opera that was about nothing and everything all at the same time. And he actually said... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sounds that, like a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> his I, his ideal, he had this idea for what he thought opera could be. And so he, in a letter to a friend, he wrote, the ideal would be two associated dreams. No time, no place, no big scene. Music in opera is far too predominant. Too much singing and the musical settings are too cumbersome. My idea is a short libretto with mobile scenes. No discussion or arguments between the characters characters who I see at the mercy of life or destiny or fate. Short libretto. Pelleas Malazan is like five so hours long. It's like long. four hours long. <laughs> <laughs> but is the libretto short? Actually, it is it on is the a, shorter actually, side. It is a lot of, there is a lot of symphonic mm-hmm. music mm. in and also some of the libretto when you read it the libretto is drawn predominantly from 
the source material that was a play by Maurice Maeterlinck or Maeterlinck. And Mm -hmm. he preserved a lot of Maeterlinck's poetry almost in its entirety. Mm -hmm. And so it's very symbolic because this was at like the the cutting edge of the symbolist artistic movement so there's a lot of everything is metaphors it can mean many things but it can also mean nothing Nothing. it makes no sense it doesn't sometimes it seems like the characters are having a conversation with a person who's not there even though they're on stage seemingly talking to each other but they're not actually interacting they're just like both saying things back and forth (laughs) like have you guys seen waiting for guffman no no Oh, well, then never mind. I'm not going to tell the story. Um, so, Christo- you know <laughs> you know who Christopher Guest is? That sounds familiar. He did, like, Best in Show. Uh, all yes. of those okay. mockumentaries. He has one called Waiting for Guffman. That is incredible. It's all about community theater. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's the same cast, like Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, all these people. And it just reminds me <laughs> of this one scene. And never mind. This is not going to mean anything because no one well, knows tell what I'm us talking then. about. Just tell us. Just tell well, us. Well, Catherine O'Hara is talking about how she wants to try that new style of new age theater that when you're talking to someone, you look away and you close your eyes. And then when you're looking away from them, you open your eyes and you stare at them. <laughs> and she does this for like two straight minutes. It's amazing. Well, but, I haven't seen this, but I'm a huge fan of Schitt's Creek, so I can just imagine how this. You would, would really like unfold. Waiting for Guffman. It's really funny. They put on Where this do like we watch it, musical. Elspeth? I don't know what platform it is currently on. We'll mm. Google it. Google it. Um, Google it. But fun fact: Did you also know that Arnold Schoenberg was writing Apelles and Melisande at the same time? I did not know that. It's not oh, an. It's really? not an opera. It is a symphonic tone poem. Oh. Interesting. Well, once we go through the story, you'll see why perhaps men of this time period were quite interested in writing some kind of musical take on this. Hmm. Hey, speaking (laughs) of New Age theater, did either of you guys go to anything at the uh, Prototype Festival? I did. I was what, not. You, oh he, wait, Ian was playing in the prototype festival. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I, I thought Prism. It was this piece called Prism. Hmm. Right. That's cool. How was it? So I was in a really bad mood. <laughs> Which I, can affect how when you I, take in when a I went, and so I was not in a great place to see it. I thought all the performers were really, really good. Um, and it was very exciting because Renee Fleming was there in the audience. Wow. Oh, my. Um, but, yeah, I was in a really bad mood, so I don't know if I'm the best to discuss it. I was not. Fair. I was not physically in New York during the Prototype Festival. Right. You were in Canada. I was, I was in Canada, eh? So, eh? Yeah. yeah, I'd like to go one of these days. I'm mad that I didn't go when I lived in New York. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff happens there. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Debussy. Debussy. <laughs> I was going to say we're so happy that Ian was in the Prototype Festival. Ian. Ian has been in the Prototype Festival for a while now. Ian played Breaking the Waves. That's really? right. Yep. Just in case anybody's wondering, Ian is Elspeth's husband. My husband. Who is percussion famous. He is percussion famous, yes. Sandbox and percussion. Look it up. Look it up. They're pretty awesome. They're percussion famous. <laughs> and Breaking the Waves is an opera by Missy, Missy Mazzoli. Mazzoli. 
Right, right. Who was just commissioned by the Met. It was announced a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. which is super exciting. She and Janine Tesori are the first women to be commissioned by the Met to create new opera. Like in the history of the company. In the history of the company. Well, yeah. since you guys are all buddy-buddy with Missy, so... We are not. Oh, didn't she? Didn't she participate in your? Yeah, we like had a conversation with her, but I wouldn't call it. We, inter- we interviewed her. We interviewed her. Um, right, but, right, but yes. right. We're not friends in a very professional setting. In a we- professional setting, in a, a very professional manner. Yes, because we are capable of such things. Yes, <laughs> when you want to. When we want to be. <laughs> when, when we're. Which is not money. now. But to get back to Debussy and his one opera. Debussy. Paris et Mélisande. Yes. So based on a play, connected with the symbolist artistic movement, basically, in a nutshell, Debussy saw the play, he read the libretto, and he had this like light bulb moment where he said, this is everything I've ever dreamed of, and it will be the perfect source for my ideal opera, the this anti-opera. The That's interesting. My moment. Who was <laughs> <laughs> the play by? Maurice Metterlink. Who wrote something else that somebody made into a really famous opera, right? Yes. I feel like we've mentioned his name recently, but now I can't remember. He wrote a bunch of stuff. He was a very famous playwright. Right, right, right. Presumably something French, right? Not necessarily. But this is not the only piece that got turned into an opera. Of his. Of his. No. But keep going. I'm going to. All right. So. I'm going to figure it out. So this opera is actually a five-act opera. Damn. Yeah. It's long as balls. It is long. (laughs) And I think, like, for people who like this opera, you kind of immediately fall in love with this opera. Or you get, when it hits you at the right moment, you just get hooked by it. And I think part of it is because the music is sort of unlike anything you would really hear on the opera stage. Hmm. Um, It is, you know... Associated strongly with French Impressionism, with which Debussy is strongly associated with. But he, in writing, he did set about to write an anti-opera or something that was kind of like the furthest away from Wagner's he could possibly get. Mm-hmm. But at the same mm-hmm. time, he did draw on techniques that we consider very Wagnerian. So the score is full of leitmotifs. But Debussy actually called Wagner's use of leitmotifs like a cheap box of tricks. And so, right, but then he in turn, so he used them a lot in in this opera, but he talked about how his characters were not enslaved by le- the light motifs, like okay, whatever did <laughs> so I, and there's certainly not nearly as many of them as there is in Wagner, um and they are I would call them much more like transformational light motifs more i would I consider it more like Dvorak's writing mm-hmm. in Rusalka where. Mm. You hear them in different contexts with different harmonies, and you can sort of recognize them, but they change and shift over right. the course of the opera. But a lot of them are actually introduced in the opening opening scene and throughout the first act of the opera. So you kind of get introduced one by one to a bunch of important themes. And so we'll talk about that. But the other important part is the harmony of this opera. A lot of people, when they try and describe it to you, they'll say it's really static Mm-hmm. It's really tautological, like everything feels like you're in like a caught in a loop or in a circle that 
there's like no escape from it. Um, hmm. Some people consider it very cerebral and like the rhythm is very cerebral and things like that. And so I think a lot of that is because not only was Debussy drawing on major and minor diatonic harmonies in order to create his harmonic structure, but he used a lot of octatonic scales and whole tone scales and pentatonic scales. And he actually divided things pretty strongly where anything that was diatonic, meaning major, minor, and pentatonic, those things, he associated all of that music with like the human realm. And then anything that was octatonic or whole tone he considered that to be like the sound of fate and destiny and like an uncontrollable force. Mm -hmm. And Mm. since the whole opera really is about or based on this idea that the characters don't have any will of their own, they're kind of caught in a web of fate or destiny. There's a lot of octatonicism and whole tone scales and just the nature of those harmonies means that it does not sound the same as a major or minor structure. Um, Mm. So to get super like music theory nerdy i printed some things that i can play to give you a brief heavens example okay so major i'm sure sure there's some people that are listening to this and they're like yes yes it's finally happening hopefully i can (laughs) explain this and it's not too rambly okay so with a major scale which sounds like this Mm -hmm. right basis Mm -hmm. of all music of all Western, Western tonal music. music. Sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Western tonal music. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, okay, so in that structure, uh, there are many different key signatures. If you take all of the white and black notes on the piano and you divide them into a major and minor key signatures, there's many different key signatures that are unique in that the pitches in them are unique. And they might share some pitches with another key, but not all of them, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So C major. Um, It sounds a little bit different than F major. The structure and the the distance from one pitch to the next are the same, but the actual pitches in the keys are different and Mm -hmm. so the difference between c major and f major is actually just one note that they don't share or that's different Mm. but it's enough to create a different structure right but if you so if you're writing in a major or minor key signature and you only use the pitches in that key it will create a very predictable pattern of harmonies and in tonal music what ends up happening is that there's this tension where the music always wants to be moving back to some kind of center or home and that's your tonic so in c major it's c in d major it's d etc and so and that's created by the distances between the pitches and the major scale and how they function in the harmonies that they create and so as an example if you do this It wants to go somewhere, mm-hmm. right? To so that's the 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 leading tone. We call it the seventh. Like wants to go to the tonic to the first. Mm-hmm. So now in octatonicism and in whole tone scales, you don't have those same distances and pitches. They're based on totally different distances of steps and that type of thing. And so they're actually in the scale itself. There is no feeling at any point that it wants to go to something next. So in the an octatonic scale starting on C sounds like this. 
So you can see that there's no real sense that any of the pitches are moving towards something specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same like thing. Like it would just keep going and going. And it would going. keep going yeah. and going and going, and there would be mm-hmm. no obvious point at which to end it or where it's moving to some kind of resolution. And mm-hmm. the same thing happens with the whole tone scale. It sounds like this. Sorry. Right, so there's this sense that it could keep going and going and going. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about both the whole tone scale and the octatonic scale is that because of the pitches that are in them, there's only so many of, uh, let's say, octatonic keys, right? Because if you try and duplicate the scale or transpose it up or modulate to an, another, starting on another pitch, it will share so many of the same pitches that, for example, the octatonic scale, there's only like three unique octatonic scales in which the pitches in that scale are completely different from the pitches in another scale, which is totally different from major and minor because we have the whole circle of fifths that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's many, many unique key signatures. Mm -hmm. So Debussy's using these structures, he's using the whole tone scale and the octatonic scale to create harmonic structures that sound like there's no end, like you can't break the loop right? And it creates a very different sound than if you did everything in major and minor structures. So that's kind of like the music nerdy way of explaining why Pelleas and Melisande sounds the way that it does. Right. So That's pretty interesting, especially having, like, to be completely honest, I haven't listened to any of this opera. So now I'm really eager to listen to some of it and hear that come out where you you don't necessarily have that leading aspect within the composition Mm -hmm. so you can actually hear this right away when the music starts in the kind of like orchestral opening to act one scene one and it starts in a forest and there is immediately a leitmotif that you're going to hear many times and that's what i started our episode with it sounds something like this hear that that motif could just repeat right ad nauseum without any kind of clear end and then immediately after that there's another motif so that first one i just played that's some people think it's the motif for the forest some people think it's timeless mystery some people think it's the enigma of the world there's all of these like weird or it could be nothing yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it could be nothing, nothing uh, at all. I wish everybody could see the face that Elspeth made when she said that. <laughs> yes, another or it person could be nothing. Nothing. One person said it represents times past. Okay, right? so whatever you think it represents, um, you hear it in bassoons and cellos, and it creates this very like dark and foreboding atmosphere. Um, I think it's gorgeous. Like that for me is the beginning, just like pulls you right in. And then immediately after you hear that motif, you hear the motif for Gulot or Glow, who is the main character. Um, or one of the three main characters, he is Peleos's half-brother. 
the mm. Pelias of the title. Right. Right. And so... <laughs> you mean not the other Pelias? Not the other Pelias <laughs> right. that's in it. Right. <laughs> the title character. But again, some people think that Gulo's motif is like, it's him. It's his character's motif. Other mm. people say it's not him at all. It represents anxiety. Some people mm. think it's the enigma of man. Or... Um, it could be nothing. It could be nothing. <laughs> yes. But do you want to play it for people? Or um, should we listen to we it? We should listen to it because okay. it's a little more complicated than my piano abilities today can That's do. That's not true. You're an excellent piano player, but let's listen to it. Okay. And then it's almost like there was this loop forming of these two motifs and the only way to break it was to introduce something new. Mm-hmm. And so then Melisande's motif comes into play, although some people say it's love or the love motif. Or nothing. Some people. thing is though elspeth i don't think you can fairly say that or it could be nothing because i mean clearly there's a light motif like <laughs> like there wouldn't it's be a this thing re- that keeps coming back right like there wouldn't it be a light motif that just represents nothing at all why not because then why do you keep bringing the same tune back again and again yeah why do you have to have a reason to do anything you d- oh gosh, what a surrealist you are! So okay. it opens up. We're in a forest, and Glow yes. shows up, and then there's this weirdo woman in the forest, and it's sitting Melisande, by a well. Who's sitting by a well, and he's like, "Oh hey, what are you doing here?" And she's like, uh. "It's actually creepy because like she doesn't her, say anything, does she? Well, or does she? Her very first words. He so he's wandering around the forest. Right, and he's like, and she's crying. Right? She's crying, and he's like, I hear, I hear something." <laughs> And then he mm. comes upon her and he's like, tears. yes, he's like, there's a lady. <laughs> and she's, she's crying. Distraught. Bonus. My favorite type of woman. Oh, sad, but sort of true. Um, mm. Yes. Okay. So Look at this easy target, alone and distraught. And then he approaches her and when she sees him, her first words are in French, ne me touche pas. Don't touch me. Nice. Which only inflames him. <laughs> like, oh, oh she's playing God. hard to get. <laughs> oh. That's not fair. His character is very complicated. Well, it's complicated. He, I wouldn't. It's not that he he starts, I think, on an honorable place with he, good <laughs> intentions, but the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. True, our words were never spoken for Goulot. So. He and also it's you know it's kind of like he doesn't really know what he's doing either because yeah he's like wandering in the woods he yeah. sees this this woman who is crying and she's like please don't touch me he's like you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna take you back to my castle because I have a castle and we're gonna get married yeah which obviously oh, not the gosh. weirdest thing that a man has done in an opera but true <laughs> look at your life look at your choices what did you think was and, going to and happen? at least in this scene he. 
it does make a valiant attempt, I think, to try and decipher, like, what's bothering her, what's wrong, or what's traumatized her, because he asks her a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. and she doesn't really give a straight answer. Like, she's sitting at the edge of a well or a pond, and then at one point he looks in and he sees, like, a crown in the water, and he said, oh, is that yours? I can retrieve it for you. And she's like, no, I don't want you to touch it. I don't want it. Leave it. And then he's like, "Where? where is it from? And she just says, he gave it to me. And Gulo's like, who is he? And she doesn't answer. And she actually looks at him and she's like, you look really old. And then there's this whole... <laughs> Wait, she said that to him? Yeah. She, yeah. yeah, she looks at him and says like, <laughs> you look old. Uh, you have gray hair. And then he's like, I'm not that old. Um <laughs> Yeah. Let me pepper, let me okay. let me prove it to you. Right. And so and he does say to her, "Please come, I can't leave you here. Please come back to my castle." And it's not like she disagrees, but she doesn't agree either, but she does actually follow him out. So it's it's not like Rusalka where she doesn't speak and the prince ends up just picking her off and taking her home. Also, well, Rusalka wants it. That's true. That's true. Fair point. Rusalka is in it to win it. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so it ends whole, about as badly for that is act, <laughs> act one, scene one, basically ends with him saying, "Let's go, let's go." And she <laughs> says to him, "Where are we going?" And he, the whole act or the whole scene ends with him saying, "I don't know. I'm lost too." Ooh, dun, hey. dun, dun. think about it. Think about it. Yeah. Okay. So wait, I okay. Go ahead. Because we're all just children lost in the woods. No one really uh, knows what's going fair on. Enough. We're all looking for some type of connection. But in the end, does it matter? Because nothing matters. <laughs> WC didn't say nothing. WC didn't say nothing matters. He said it doesn't mean anything. That <laughs> no. needs to be. Sorry. Sorry. That's better. You're right. That's better. Nothing means that, anything. That needs to be the subtitle for this episode. Nothing at, and nothing Melisande. really matters <laughs> to me, to me or really WC. <laughs> All right. That's amazing. Bohemian Rhapsody was actually inspired by Peleos. Inspired really. by. I did. Well, it, you know but... what? It was a really popular play. You know, a lot of people wrote, they were all orchestral works, but like Foray wrote a Peleos and Melisande. Um, Sibelius wrote a Peleos and Melisande. Huh. William Wallace, the composer. Not Braveheart. <laughs> wrote Pelas and Melisande. Do it, Elspeth. Do it. I love ya. Always have. Always will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too good. Uh, back to Pelas and Melisande. So, <laughs> act I mean, one, scene none two. None of it matters. None of it matters. Yes. Go on. No, nothing means anything. Go on. Yes. So, act one, scene two. Several months have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in the castle where Gulo grew up, mm-hmm. and his mother, who is the mother of both Gulo and Pelias, um, is reading a letter to this blind king, and um, it was sent by Gulo to Pelias, and basically Gulo is saying, uh, hey family, I married this girl, I know that it means that I am not, no longer free to marry this other person you had destined for me but i love her and i'm sailing home if it's safe for me to come home like put a candle out so that i will return to the castle um and if not i will just keep on sailing and never come back 
Um, mm-hmm. And then so Which the, probably would have been safer for a lot of people. A lot of people. <laughs> and so then the old king, Arkel, doesn't really seem too bothered. He's like, well, you know, Gulot <laughs> lost his first wife and that kind of destroyed him. So if he's found happiness with this, this Melisande, so be it. That's fate. Um, and then Peleus comes into the room and you hear his motif and then he's crying. He's received a letter from a friend who's about to die and he wants to go travel to this friend and say goodbye to him. But um, his parents are like, well, Arkel and Genevieve say to him, no, you should wait for your brother to return. Um, also, your own father is pretty sick here uh, and about to die, so you should not leave. Um, also, go light the candle so Gulo knows to come back. Um, and that's how that scene ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, act one, scene three. Peleos and- forgets to light the candle. No, he remembered because Genevieve and Melisande, so queen and, I guess, princess Melisande at that point, are walking around the castle grounds and Melisande talks a lot about how everything's really dark and gloomy and then Peleus arrives and um, they're looking out at the ocean and Melisande sees this ship and she points to it and she's like, ah, that's going to sink. And then, (laughs) yep, night falls. Um, Peleus attempts to take Melisande's hand to help her down some steep part of the garden path, but she refuses and she says that she's holding flowers. She doesn't want to touch him. Um, And then he tells her that he might have to go away the next day and she asks him why. And then that scene ends. A lot of sexual tension there. (laughs) So that's act one. Mm Mm-hmm.
two. We're now in a park. It's a hot summer's day, and who is out playing around a well in the park but Pelias and Melisande. Mm-hmm. And hey. yes, Pelias has brought Melisande here, and he said, this is one of my favorite places in the whole wide world. And she's like, what's it called? And he says, it's blind men's well. And he said that people use it to try and cure blindness, whatever. Melisande lies down. She like tries to look in and then her hair falls into the water and then Pelias is like oh my goodness your hair is getting wet it's getting really heavy it's gonna drag you in um then he's like oh my goodness your hair is so long metaphor yes (laughs) (laughs) if only you could have done like the finger hashtags hashtag metaphor (laughs) (laughs) so then Melisande says, you know, I met Goulot by a well or a spring just like this. And then Pelias is like, did he try and kiss you? And she doesn't really answer, but she takes off her wedding ring that Goulot gave her and she starts throwing it up in the air. And she's like, look, I can throw it so high. And Pelias is like, I don't think you should do that. I don't mm-hmm. think you should do that. And then she keeps doing it. And then the clock strikes 12. I don't know why there's a clock. What? <laughs> in but- the distance. Somewhere in the world, a clock strikes 12, and then Melisande act- throws it up, and then it accidentally falls into the well. And of course. Yes, and then she looks at Pelias, and she's like, what am I going to tell Goulot? I've lost my wedding ring. And the act ends with, Pe- or the scene ends with Pelias looking at her and saying, just tell him the truth. <laughs> Curtain! <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is it's like a totally normal like oh no I like my my ring fell into a well what should I do and the guy's like oh you should just tell him you know that. <laughs> right <laughs> okay so climactic right act 2 scene 2 they're back in the castle Goulot is lying in bed with Melisande um and while she was off playing with Pelias in the woods, apparently Goulot fell from his horse and he was wounded. So usually he's like sitting in bed with like a cast or a sling or something. Mm. Um, and apparently he tells her, well, I got wounded because the horse bolted as the clock, again, the clock in the forest, wherever he was hunting, <laughs> struck 12, scared my horse oh, and threw me off. What? Melisande bursts into tears and then Goulot's like, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm so happy. I feel, don't feel well. And she tries to ask him, like, can we go away somewhere? Let's leave this castle. And he's like, why are you so unhappy? She doesn't really say. And then he's like, is it Pelias? Is Pelias mean to you? Like, he's weird. Just don't pay attention to him. <laughs> and she just complains that it's gloomy all the time. And then he tries to comfort her. And then he realizes that her ring is missing. Mm. And... Dun, dun, dun. Why is your ring missing, Melisande? And instead of telling him the truth, she says, well, I was down by a a cave by the sea. I was collecting seashells with your son because Goulot has a son by his first wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lost it somewhere in the cave down by the sea. And Goulot says, that's ridiculous. Go find it. Go find it now. And then Melisande's like, it's dark and I'm afraid to go there alone. And then Goulot says, if it's that big of a deal, bring Pelias with you if you're too scared. Ooh, no. Yeah. 
Why would he be like, just take my hot younger brother? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think because he's confident. I think it was true. He was trying to like punish her because he thought that she was weirded out by Pelias and doesn't like him, mm. and so as kind of like a punishment <laughs> for losing her ring. Go take this guy been, who weirds you out and get him to be your bodyguard. Saying, I don't know. No, no. Peleus, ew. Ew. No. <laughs> no. But she never actually says that. Gulo exactly. just like projects that onto right. her, exactly. right? Okay. Uh, act two, scene three. They're outside the cave, Peleus and Melisande. Um, It's pitch dark. Melisande doesn't want to go in. Peleus says to her, you have to go in enough to describe it so that Gulo believes that you actually came here to look for the ring. Otherwise, he's never going to believe you. Um, they walk into the cave and then they find three beggars sleeping in the cave. And then Melisande's just like, we shouldn't be here. I don't want to be here. And Palia says, that's okay. We'll just come back another day. Mm. Curtain. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I like how it keeps the scenes keep ending with, with Pelias saying something completely reasonable <laughs> and and non dramatic. But what does it mean? Go on. First, first we're still we not have, done. I, no, we're just, we're please, not. Let me, oh, we're not even close. Yeah. So we're in Act Three, and what's happened I'm, so far? I'm just saying. First, we have the scene where she's like, "What should I tell him?" And he's like, "Oh, just the truth." <laughs> and she's like, I don't want to be here. And he says, okay, we'll come back later. <laughs> yes. Les passions, le 
Now, act three. This is probably, I think, the most famous scene of the opera and Mm -hmm. probably the most memorable musically uh, other than, like, the opening motifs. This Mm -hmm. is what we call My Hair is So Long. My Hair is So Long. And so she's at the top of this tower, Melisande is, and she's kind of leaning out the window and she's combing her hair. Like Rapunzel. Kind of like Rapunzel, yeah. And she's singing all about how my hair is so long. Um, And so she sings this unaccompanied melody, which I learned was actually a part of the original play by Metterlink, where he actually wrote the words and he found a melody for the actress in the play version to sing and Debussy liked it so much that he just like lifted that whole thing and put it in the opera with the exact melody I'm pretty sure I could be wrong but from what I remember nice he because and and I think it makes sense when you listen to it because as you listen to the melody you're like well it sounds a little bit like a folk song and it doesn't sound like the rest of the opera it's much more melodic than the rest of the opera so Mm. it makes sense that he would have kind of pulled that from somewhere else. Right. up in the tower brushing her hair and Peleus appears and asks her to lean out so that he can kiss her hand because he needs to go away the next day and so she leans out but he and he reaches up and they can't reach each other and he's like you know just a little bit further a little bit further and then as she reaches a bit further all of her crazy long hair tumbles down from the window and so instead of kissing her hand he starts like kissing her hair and caressing it and in most productions her hair is like you know like 10 feet long or something like that and in most productions Peleus like wraps it around his neck and around his head and it's like this whole erotic thing with her hair (laughs) with the hair yes with her hair Mm. yes Mm. Mm mm-hmm um and but now it's gonna get weird um after after right after he's you know like sexually caressed her hair um he ties her hair to a tree mm-hmm. nice right and she's like ow untie me let me go and he's like no no i'm not going to untie you and then uh <laughs> melisande starts <laughs> panicking because she hears somebody coming and she's like somebody's coming you have to untie me someone's gonna see this and it, we're gonna get in trouble and Pelias still won't untie her and then Gulo is approaching and he 
walks by and he's kind of like, do I hear something? Is somebody out there? But he doesn't actually approach the tower or approach where Pelias is. And then he's like, huh, must just be children playing. And then he walks away. <laughs> oh, jeez. Curtain. Curtain. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This sounds like a children's opera, if I'm being honest. What? No, Aww. no. It's That's so much meaning. <laughs> or right, is there? Right. Hair sex has happened. Curtain. <laughs> that was one that Hashtag. like gradually it gradually got funnier like the longer that I sat with it, you know. Hair <laughs> <Hair> sex. <laughs> right? The more you think about it, the more it just gets really funny. I know that it seems bizarre, but this was actually like a big trend a big thing. in this time period. <laughs> We're like Because no, you know that um that WC that really famous uh song cycle the the chanson de billetis yes um that mm-hmm. whole second song is all about the i dreamed that you wrapped yourself up in my hair and it's mm-hmm. you know and wasn't that by, what was the 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 poet charles baudelaire that those wc songs are based on there's just this wild story about this those set that set of poetry where baudelaire claimed that he like found these poems in some like archaic medieval manuscript i thought it was like an etruscan like all the way back to like greek something like that like some kind of ancient thing and so but really he wrote them himself and it came out like months later that they were not like (laughs) discovered from some ancient source he wrote them um what a lying perv (laughs) there's something about the hair man hey everyone's got a (laughs) fetish palias has a hair fetish (laughs) i mean it's two consenting that, adults. What does it matter? I'm not saying that hair isn't important. It is. It's just, uh, you know. It's. It, let's just say. It's not your thing, but it's some people's thing. It's other tenors' thing. Sure. Or baritones. Sure. And I would say that, like, the idea of, like, wrapping yourself up in, in, someone. in someone's hair was, <laughs> it was just this, like, symbol of, the exotic and intimacy at that time that was very provocative that has maybe lost a little bit of its provocative power today. Right, because this is like a time when you you couldn't show ankles. Right. Well, it was a time where you couldn't wear your hair down, right? Yes, that too. Yeah, exactly. To see somebody's somebody's hair let down was Unbound. Yeah, very intimate thing. Yes. So um, after this, uh, act three, scene Two uh-huh. is oh, when right. and, and we have five acts, so we're yes. just right in the middle of it, right in the sweet spot. Yeah. Okay. So Goulot is leading Peleus down into like the dungeons and vaults of the castle, and it's dark and awful, and apparently it smells really bad. And um, Peleus basically wants to like lean over a ledge to see what lies past the ledge and he's like Gulo, hold on to me so i don't fall in um and then Pelias is like it really smells like death in here and i don't want to be here um <laughs> let's leave mm. and so curtain curtain mm-hmm. <laughs> all right so then scene three they're they're like right outside the cave so obviously Gulo was like okay um and from where they're standing at the base of this vault or cave or wherever they were, they can see Melisande and Genevieve, the boy's mother, in the distance. And Goulot turns to Pelias and he's like, 
you leave Melisande alone. No more of those childish games between you. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. So I'm not really sure how Peleus responds. I don't remember exactly if he's like, why? Or childish <laughs> games? What are you talking about? Whatever um, do you mean? It might be that he says nothing, but essentially Gulo elaborates and he's like, stay away from Elizond. No more childish games. She's pregnant and I don't want anything to happen to the baby. Ooh. And what? Um, Who's baby? Who's <laughs> baby? Come on. They've done nothing wrong at That's this That's true. Point. It's only hair sex, which doesn't conceive but children. Back in, in that in that time, hair sex that's it cheating. Was a big deal, yes. She's married to his brother. Yes, but her a hair lot of, is spoken for. A lot of people argue that it's highly unlikely that at this point the baby is Peleos's. Mm, fair enough. No, I know yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. Glow's baby. It's Glow's baby. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Anywho's. Scene mm-hmm. four. Uh, so, this, again, things are going to get weird. So, Gulo is sitting <laughs> with his little son, Yanoid. Do you know how to pronounce his name? Nope. I don't know either. The kid on stage. Y-N-I-O-L-D. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's Enold. Enold or something. Enold, something like that. So mm-hmm. Gulo's, Gulo's son, Melisande's stepson, mm-hmm. um, they're sitting and Gulo is basically asking his son all about Peleus and Melisande. And he's like, have you seen them together? Have you seen them do anything? And the child's not really providing any kind of like helpful answers. And <laughs> then one day he's like, oh, I think I saw um, Peleus and Melisande kiss once when it was raining. And Gulo's like, what? But then, you you know, it's a kid. You have no idea if it's, like, where this came from. And so then they hear something outside, and Gulo, like, lifts his son to the window, and he's like, what do you see? What's going on? And um, he says, oh, it's Peleus and Melisande outside. And then, so Gulo is, like, trying to force his kid to spy on Peleus and Melisande. He's like, what do you see? What do you see? And his son is like, Put me down, put me down. He's like, No, what do you see? And Papa, Papa. Oh, right. I and think then, I know what's going to happen. What no. do you think is going to happen? And he drops his son out the window. It's a whole Bram situation. No, the kid's fine. Dang it. <laughs> Sorry. The kid is totally fine. I don't, think like, I don't think there's kid, get, kid death. Not that opera. kid death. No. Oh, wow. Foreshadowing. Uh, not really. Yeah. Oh. Uh. No. Yeah. No, that one lives. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, no. No, you're right. Elspeth's right. She dies. False alarm. And he dies. Yeah. Oh. Look, the, oh, opera child called, dies in the opera is called Peleus and Melisande. Do you think they live at the end of it? Probably not. No, of course they don't. No. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> They're dead. Moving on. But how do they die? We'll Act get to four. that. Wow. Everything has been so they die like, relatively ennui. innocent so far. I'm surprised that they oh. die. Oh, it's emotional cheating. Good, good comment, though, because this is something that will come back to haunt us at the end. They are <gasps> supposed innocence. So, oh. the Yenold, Yenold does not, the kid, the kid <laughs> does not fall out the window. Uh, Gulo eventually puts him down and they walk away. Mm-hmm. Curtain. Curtain. 
Jeez. It's Act. Every, it's, it's the opposite of what you ever expect in any opera. It's like a kid that's like, no, please, put me down, put me down. And then you expect something terrible to happen, and it's actually just, oh, he he put him down. Put him down. Like we said at the beginning, the anti-opera. <laughs> exactly. Uh. We're getting somewhere, people. Mm-hmm. So, um, at this point, Pelias tells Melisande, my father's getting better. I'm finally going to go travel, I guess, to see his dying friend. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine his dying friend is still alive at this point. But right. Pelias is like, I'm going away. I'm actually going this time. And then he's like, meet me one last time by the blind man's well in the park. <laughs> <laughs> For hair sex. (laughs) (laughs) So, I want to get wet. I want to get at that hair one more time. (laughs) (sighs) Anyhow. So she's like, cool. Or she says nothing. She says nothing. <laughs> because Melisande is a cipher on which men project their own feelings. Exactly. Right. Anyway. So the next scene. So curtain. Curtain. Meet me in the park. Curtain. curtain. <laughs> uh, scene two. Uh, basically, it's this confrontation between Arkel, the old king, and Melisande. And he's like, you know, when, I, when you first came here, I felt sorry for you because... You looked, like, sad and alone and bewildered. Um, But then he's like, now I don't know. Like, now I see some new kind of era. And then, so they're having this weird discussion. And then Gulo comes in, kind of bursts onto the scene. He's covered in blood. Uh, Melisande tries to wipe the blood away and ask him what's been going on. And he's like, don't touch me. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and then Goulot says that he notices Melisande is trembling and, um, he's like, what is going on? And then he mocks her innocence. Um, I guess because he like has a sword with him and he's looking all bloody and I guess 
battle-worn. And then Arkel says that he can see in Melisande's eyes that she has this great innocence, but Gulo is like, that's ridiculous. Um, she's like, there's no innocence in her eyes. And then he makes this weird comment, I will shut them for a long time. Ooh. Oh, shit. And then he, then it gets really violent. He tells Melisande that she disgusts him and he drags her around the room by her hair. Uh, hey. Yes. Domestic and violence. Yep. Arkel, Arkel, the old king, literally just watches the whole time that this happens. And then after Gulo leaves, Arkel looks at Melisande and he's like, what's wrong with him? Is he drunk? And Melisande's like, he doesn't love me anymore. Curtain. Curtain? <laughs> Curtain. Curtain. <laughs> Curtain. 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 Yeah. Wait, but did you say whose blood he's covered in? No, he's. I think he like was cut by some thorn or something like that. Oh, um, that is a metaphor. That has to be a metaphor. For what? Gulo claims that his cut or the blood was caused by a thorn. A thorn in his side. <gasps> yes. So. But we don't really get an explanation for what happened. <laughs> anyway, curtain. Okay, curtain. Act three. This one's pretty no, simple. Scene, scene. Sorry. No. Act three, scene three. No, act no. four. Act four. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, act going four. Going back in time. Okay. Act four, scene three. Yes. Um, we're at the well in the park, but it's not Pallis <sighs> Melisande that are there. It's the little son, Yenold, who's there. Oh, That's no. All. He's sort of by himself. He's playing with a golden ball. It gets trapped between some rocks. Um, he hears a flock of sheep, and a shepherd comes onto the scene, and then the shepherd starts, like, asking Yenold questions. Um, or Yenold starts asking him questions about the sheep. The shepherd doesn't really answer. And then Yenold's like, I'm going to go find someone else to talk to. Curtain. Curtain. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Scene four. Uh... Um, Pelias is alone at the well. So he's worried about how attached he's become to Melisande. And he fears what the consequences will be with him leaving. Um, but he knows he has to leave. 
And then she arrives and she's able to slip away without Gulo noticing or she thinks so. And then when at first she seems pretty distant from Pelias and he's like trying to be really affectionate and then she kind of warms up to him and Pelias admits to her that he loves her and Melisande admits that she reciprocates that feeling and she says, I've loved you since the first time I saw you. And then they hear the castle gates being closed in the distance. So at this point, they're basically locked outside. And then they're like, well, I guess we'll just have to wait here until morning to go back in. And they lean in for a kiss. And I believe they actually kiss. And at that moment, someone comes out from behind the trees and is like, ha ha, caught you. And it is, of course, Goulot. Dang. And Goulot basically... Or not basically, he does draw his sword and just like with one fell swoop, he like stabs Peleus and Peleus falls down dead. Um, wow. You mean there's no, there's no like Aria while he dies? There are no Arias in this opera. There's no Arias. It's just like long drawn out scenes. Wow. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Fair enough. Um but Peleus is defenseless, like he doesn't have a way to fight back. And then Melisande is a little bit wounded in this exchange. It's possible that like she tries to break it up or stop it. And she flees into the woods saying that um, as Peleus is dying, basically she like runs away. And she's like, I'm not as brave as you. And bolts from the scene. Dude. Curtain. Curtain. Is that end of act four? End of act four. Last act. Last act. And there's only one scene in this act. So. Oh. Okay. Fair enough. So, Melisande has given birth to her baby. Mm-hmm. And she's not doing so well. So, she's, like, in her bed pretty weak and pretty sick. And the doctor says to Gulo, like, I know that your wife is sick and not doing so well, but don't worry. It will... I'll be better. She'll she'll recover. It's not a big deal. Um, but Goulot himself is like just so eaten up with guilt over killing Pelias. And he says to Melisande that maybe I killed Pelias for no reason. Like maybe the two of you were just sharing a kiss like brother and sister. And, <laughs> and sure, she's like, no. Sure. <laughs> she doesn't say anything at that point for or against it. She's like, can you open the window? Um, I want to see the sunset. And... Then Gulo asks everyone to leave so he can talk to Melisande alone. And he basically just begs her over and over again, like, tell me the truth. Tell me what happened. Like, did you love Peleus? Did you not love Peleus? Um, Like, confess, confess, confess. And she just keeps saying, I'm innocent. I did nothing wrong. I am innocent. And then... Gulo is just badgering her so much that the doctor and Arkel, when they come back into the room, they're like, give the lady a break. Like, you're going to kill her just by hounding her. And they go to hand Melisande her new baby, and she's given birth to a baby girl, but she can't actually hold the baby because she's so weak. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then Melisande says, I don't hear her crying. That means that she will live a sad existence oh gosh yes and then so Goulot is like holding his daughter and um at and Melisande just kind of quietly dies and no one really realizes that she's died and 
Um, apparently, there's supposed to be like a, a chorus of servants that are all women in the room. And at the moment that Melisande dies, they all like fall to their knees. And then the opera supposedly ends with like Gulo holding his daughter and Arkel like comforting him as he weeps. And Good. that is how the opera ends. Ooh. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a downer. It is a bit of a downer, but I think it's really fascinating because it's one of those operas where you can read so much into it and you can kind of interpret it in endlessly fascinating ways. And so because, as you've heard, everyone, it is rather ambiguous in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't a whole lot of explicit things that are said or that happen. Um, but there's obviously a lot of baggage that all of these characters have. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of productions do like wildly creative or crazy or different things with this opera. And so when it was first performed, it was performed in a very traditional way, like set kind of in a medieval castle, uh -huh. um, nothing too out there, a literal forest, a literal well, that kind of thing. But nowadays you have productions that just do all kinds of crazy things with it. So I think it's all about trying to like dig deeper at what these characters' motivations are and trying to explain some of the different interactions and what happens. Um, hmm. So you have some pretty crazy productions of this as a result. But yeah. And so it's on stage right now at the Met. It is. What is yes. that? Do you guys have any idea what that production is like? That production is actually set um, in the time that the piece was written. Mm -hmm. So it's traditional. Well, traditionally, Pelias and Melisande is set in medieval times, but this is set oh, at the turn of the century. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But it is in a, a I would it's say, like a more literal castle. setting. Yeah. Like it's a, it's an actual castle, an actual forest, um, an actual cave, an actual well. An actual well. There's one production, I think Robert Carson directed it, where I think it was Robert Carson. Um, I've not seen this, but I was told about this production where essentially like all of the characters are just on these like high pedestals kind of suspended on the stage the whole time. And so there is no like literal place that anything happens in and all of their movements are really um, strongly choreographed. It was oh, very dude. symbolist. Interesting. For four hours. Yeah. yeah so and then what, there's, with all of these acts, what happens? How many intermissions are there? There's well, the Met does it with two, intermi two, yeah. two intermissions. After which acts? I'd have to look. I don't know. Elspeth and I haven't seen it yet this season. We're going together as opera buddies next week to see right. Kyle's girlfriend. Uh. I think it's I think it's one and two intermission, and then three and four intermission, and five. That would make sense. Yeah. Fair enough. Isabel Leonard is singing Melisande. Right. We'll say so. hi to her. Thanks. Yes. And Hasht Paul Appleby is singing Pelias, I think. Yes. Yeah. Hashtag opera crush. <laughs> so many hashtags in this episode. So too. Well, now we've heard about the opera that means everything and nothing. And nothing. And so I, I lectured. In between. I lectured on this opera not long ago, 
And it was very interesting because people's reactions were very mixed. Like some mm-hmm. people were very intrigued to know more about this and intrigued about the character of Melisande. But like Elspeth mentioned, a lot of people interpret Melisande as like representing this blank canvas that the men in the opera project their desires onto mm-hmm. and how, and Debussy did write a lot about how he was attracted to the idea that like she had no, no agency, agency of her own. And all of the characters didn't really have agency of their own. They're all caught in some kind of web of fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, there was one person who was at the lecture who I was chatting with afterwards who thought that like Melisande definitely needed therapy and <laughs> and I thought well you know like totally all the characters true. in this yeah. opera could use a right you know some help because they all seem to be dealing with their own kind of trauma and pain and kind of like not able to actually communicate with each other in a way that is helpful mm-hmm. so but yeah it's beautiful well there we have it is there a beautiful segment like a most beautiful segment that we could listen to going out we'll pick one of the symphonic moments there's a lot of connective music too between the scenes and so those are all just really beautiful um yeah beautiful in like a a weird different way is the best way to sum it up i think because it's obviously not like a glorious uplifting story right but the music is is I would say pretty um, important both in like the techniques and how it influenced everyone that came afterwards and also really beautiful in its own unique way. So we'll pick a good bit to play. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking us through it, Naomi. Thank you, Naomi. Your expertise is always appreciated. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad we got to the end of it because (laughs) I wasn't sure if we would make it tonight. Well, uh, uh, also, thank you to everybody for listening. Of course, you can always find more episodes of Opera After Dark at operaafterdark.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Be sure to check out our previous episode on Debussy. Yes, episode 59. 59. Learn what a cool, not-so-cool guy he was. Not-so-cool guy he was. (laughs) That's right. Always interesting. And we'll be back with you next week for another episode of Opera After Dark. I'm Kyle. I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. Bye.